Thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. Every school child knows there are three branches to our government and that they are co-equal, but our founders, those that wrote and bequeathed to us the Constitution, placed Congress first among equals. Both literally, the legislative branch is Article I of the Constitution, and figuratively, Congress alone has the power to tax, the power to spend, and the power to declare war. These are the greatest powers any state can exercise over its citizenry, and they are invested in our national legislature. The 117th Congress convenes with our legislative branch at an even new low. Successive Congresses over many, many decades have delegated their powers away to an executive branch headed by a president that now assumes more actual powers than George III could have hoped to exercise in England, much less over the colonies that formed this nation. Presidents routinely engage in overseas military engagements, war by another name, without even consulting Congress. Executive agencies create national policy, spend public monies, and levy taxes by rule and by fee, with the most tenuous connection to laws actually enacted by the Congress. And so it was this week that our Congress was held up for the pathetic and feckless shell of an institution it has made itself. The President of the United States directed a mob of armed, costumed hooligans carrying his banner to march on Capitol Hill and show strength. This mob proceeded to sack and loot the Capitol, run rampage through its halls and chambers, and make a mockery of its proceedings. President Trump, to his everlasting shame, bears alone the responsibility for launching this attack on a co-equal branch of government that has now left five people dead. Who bears the responsibility for generations of unchecked executive power, increasingly emboldened presidents, and a defenseless capital? And where do we go from here? Perhaps my colleagues know. I'm joined today by Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas. We're going to try to cover 2021, such as it is, in 21 minutes. Guys, welcome to 14th and G. Thank, Thank you, Dean. Dean. That was awesome. Uh, and I'm not sure I want an extra minute uh, starting this week here uh, uh, <laughs> to discuss these uh, really horrific events, but uh, but let's give it a shot. Well, D- DT, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, this because Democrats now uh, will control the Congress. The blue wave arrived, but arri- arrived late. What what are we going to see here over over the next two weeks, the last two weeks of President Trump's term? Well, what what the plan was until uh, Tuesday evening uh, was for the House and uh, Senate to, to leave and to come back right before the inauguration, uh, try to cool the tempers of uh, a really uh, rough and tumble uh, election and transition state. That, I think, is now um, uh, definitely changed. I expect, and I think um, as we record this, the House Democratic Caucus is having a meeting to discuss uh, what they could do. I think what we're going to hear coming uh, out of that meeting is that the House is going to reconvene next week and not adjourn, and then they will uh, move to impeach President Trump again. He will then hold the uh, unwelcome distinction of being our only president impeached uh, twice. And uh, I I think there are a couple of reasons that they feel like they need to do this. Uh, Number one, his actions need to be punished. We can't just whistle past the graveyard for the next 12 days and, and then let him return to Mar-a-Lago to uh, lick his, his wounds, uh, self-inflicted wounds, that he needs to be held accountable, number one. Number two is, uh, while the Senate is uh, very unlikely to be able to process an impeachment in the m- remaining days, there is a great amount of concern about what he could still do. 
that he is uh, so unhinged uh, at this point that he could cause great damage to the country. And this is a way to uh, continue to try to put guardrails on him until we can get to January 20th. Including these, you know, including the pardons he's discussed for himself and his family and including pardons for uh, members of the mob uh, that engaged in a riot that left five people dead, including a Capitol Hill police officer now. Yeah, those are that that's definitely one of the things that's being discussed here is uh, that one of one of his remaining powers that uh, is uncheckable. And the only way he loses that is when he's no longer president. And for those uh, students of history who know, you know, presidents can pardon individuals, but they can also pardon pardon larger groups. President uh, Carter, during his term, pardoned Vietnam War protesters who avoided the draft, those who burnt their draft cards, those who went to Canada. Uh, that was thousands of people. Uh, that he blanket pardoned during his presidency to move on from the Vietnam uh, War and, and the rift that that had caused in our country. If Trump were to do something similar uh, like that, that really uh, just continues to be salt in this very deep wound. And so that's one of the concerns that's out there. Bruce, House and Senate were in the middle of, of a constitutional process certifying the Electoral College results, which is an enumerative uh, function, not a qualitative function. They were chased out. They were chased out by the mob. They were chased out of the House chamber, chased out of the Senate chamber. Those members then came back, resumed the certification process, and 138 Republican House members and six Republican senators maintained their objections to the Electoral College certification and, and voted to disenfranchise those voters. Where does, the, where does the Republican Party go from here? Well, if we're lucky, the world's longest silkwood shower. I think, Dean, as we've seen over the last four years, the GOP has been divided between leaders and lemmings. Um, the lemmings following the president, whatever he says, if Vladimir Putin says he didn't interfere, then I guess he didn't interfere. Um, if uh, if the president said he won a landslide, maybe he won a landslide. That that lemming caucus was swelled to a to a, a frightening size, uh, and the voices of the leaders have often been outside of Washington. People like Maryland's uh, governor Larry Hogan. But I think that was uh, Wednesday was a uh, was a meaningful and pivotal moment. Even in advance of that, you had started to see folks like Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Ben Sass of Nebraska step up in defense of constitutional democracy and what we've decided. Even, even folks like Senator Cotton pointing out that the Congress and the vice president overriding the will of the people is not what conservatives are not what Republicans are supposed to believe in. It's my hope and belief that, uh, that the civil war we knew was coming in the Republican party has, has meaningfully changed. And that those who want to continue to suggest that Donald uh, Trump is the second coming have gone from a, uh, a fairly powerful plurality, if not majority, to an increasingly shrinking minority who realize there is no future there, and they're going to quickly try to erase their own past in being his enablers. But isn't the energy, uh, the, the energy, the momentum within the party, is, is it with Ben Sass and Mitt Romney and Larry Hogan, or is it with a MAGA uh, now infused by QAnon conspiracy theorists. Isn't that where the energy is? Uh, it's certainly where the energy has been, Dean. And it's it's early to suggest that uh, everything's going to get better as a result of hitting bottom on Wednesday. Uh, but I do believe that the forces arrayed against 
the MAGA uh, style and substance, uh, the, the forces arrayed against them are stronger than they were a week ago, uh, that, the, that the Trumpists are weaker than they were a week ago, uh, that our collective sense that he, Donald Trump, would be out of uh, Washington, but not out of politics and not out of influence, um, that concern is, is uh, persistent, but diminished from where it had been uh, a week ago or two weeks ago, or particularly or a couple of months ago. Hell, we saw, as many Republicans realized in Georgia, rather than making it a question about checks and balances, Donald Trump wanted to make it once again a referendum on Donald Trump. And as we saw in the midterm elections of 2018, Republicans get pretty punished when Trump's not concurrently on the ballot. He's not going to be on the ballot in 24. He's going to make noise to raise money to pay debts that he might run again in 24, but he's not. I believe this was a pretty seminal moment and event for Republicans. And, and historically, I liken it to the McCarthy era, when you had another demagogue that most in the base uh, knew, or not in the base, most uh, of the leaders knew was was uh, was a fantasist, um, but also had this huge following. And a lot of folks were afraid to pick a fight with him, but then he went too far. And you had a censure of, of Senator McCarthy, and he quickly uh, saw an erosion of his staying power. Trump, because he's been president, is going to have more staying power. Uh, but I believe directionally it's heading down and will continue forever to head down. Of course, Edward R. Edward R. Murrow uh, famously was the one who called out Senator uh, McCarthy and uh, I think changed the tide of his, his career. I'm just not sure that the uh, people who need to hear this most, uh, the MAGA supporters, are going to hear anybody who calls this out because they're going to continue to listen to the likes of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, and they are no Edward R. Murrow. Well, DT, uh, we will have a new president in uh, 12 days' time. Uh, Joe Biden will take the oath of office uh, as the 46th president of the United States. He is continuing to, I think the cabinet now is finalized with uh, Merrick Garland uh, as his nominee for attorney general. After the results in Georgia, Democrats will have at least nominal control of the Senate floor with uh, Vice President Harris in the chair breaking ties. Uh, it's going to be a much easier path for his nominees. What's shaping up there? What do, what do we expect in the, in the few days to come and then once he assumes office? Boy, I just keep thinking to myself, be careful what you ask for. Uh, Joe Biden has such an enormous task ahead of him here. It was, uh, I guess, not enough to just have to deal with a pandemic and the racial strife that our uh, country has seen. We now have you know, this crisis of democracy. My uh, hope, and I believe he is up to this, is that he is the one who can try to pull us together. And I, I think his uh, calm, reassuring uh, messages since election night continuing to go through his remarks on uh, on Tuesday after the riot. He's trying to cool the temperature of the country, and he uh, consistently says uh, he will be the president of all Americans. And I, I you know, my hope is, is that um, starts to, to, to uh, uh, really uh, fall off some of the re relations between these sides that have been so polarized and, and, and split apart. He's got a huge job. It's unlikely that we'll see uh, any of his cabinet nominees confirmed by the Senate. Uh, by the time the Senate is sworn in. Incidentally, we think that January 19th is likely to be the day that the two Georgia senators are sworn in. And I would expect also uh, Alex Padilla, the new senator from California. You know, he will likely be uh, on his own, at least initially here. But lost in everything is that the Senate is, uh, 
going to be flipping uh, sides here. That became a, uh, you know, not even a front page story earlier this week because of the other events. There is hope that these nominees can be processed quickly. I would say other than uh, John Office and, and, and uh, Reverend Warnock, I think uh, Neer Tandon may have been celebrating the most on these uh, on election night because her uh, nominee has been uh, breathed new life. She's got a much better chance of getting through the Senate now. So I think initially we're going to see nominees. Let's get those people in and in place. Next, you know, pandemic, they need to have a new federal approach here, reset on uh, vaccine, vaccine distribution, helping our, our hospital and our healthcare system, uh, restoring that up. That is a major priority. And then third, and I think this will be the first bill that you see out of the House, is uh, HR1 will be a voting rights bill, partially in response to the election and everything that's happened over the past week here. But that's going to be another issue. So boy, does he have a big agenda. And if I can, if I can uh, jump on to that, I agree with that 100%. And without a doubt, the Democrats uh, being in the majority or at least controlling the Senate uh, and the floor will help with the confirmations. But the tragic events of this week, I think, will also help as well. There are a lot of Republicans. Dean, you know them and I know them. Your old boss, all of your old bosses fit in this category. Are patriots and Americans first? They believe that when you win the White House, as Joe Biden did by more than 7 million votes, you get to pick your cabinet. But you and I both worried about how complicated the confirmation process was going to be because of that uh, wing of the Republican Party that was going to try to fight on every nominee and fight about everything. Right now, the uh, the more patriotic wing of the party, the folks who believe uh, that their job is to uh, work with the president, not to agree with them on everything, certainly not on policy, but who recognizes that a qualified nominee is should be confirmed. The Romneys, the Collins, the Murkowskis, the Portmans, um, they've got uh, far more uh, readiness, eagerness, and and uh, and room to operate. So I actually think. Um, that uh, that in the first quarter and second quarter of this year, if Joe Biden uh, governs the way he campaigns and the way he's operated his whole career as a as a moderate who's looking to work with Republicans, you know, who believes in institutions and who isn't looking necessarily to dunk on the other side just because they're divided or weak right now, I think there is a lot of room for compromise and a lot of room for thoughtful progress. Well, look, guys, I'm frankly not hopeful. I would like. Some optimism, though, Bruce, uh, regular listeners to 14th and G know we preview your quarterly slide deck and Q1 slide deck, I understand, was entitled The Case for Optimism. As much as I'd like to be optimistic, are you high? (laughs) (laughs) That would be a case for optimism. It was the case for optimism, why the future might be better than you think. Um, I am certainly reassessing whether I still go there or not. Uh, but part of it is, you know, it, smart people these days, if you're smart and serious, you've got to be pessimistic. You know, Henninger wrote, who's a conservative, that pessimism is conservatism, what, what is to conservative politics, what pumpkin pie is to Thanksgiving. You know, and Matthew Iglesias on the left was talking about how there's a norm in American progressive politics looking at every glass as half empty. You know, and without a doubt, this has been one of the most trying years through this week. So I'm counting this first week as as 2020 uh, of our lifetimes and of a lot of history that we read. At the same time, the students of history will recognize that we've had very dark and, and, and divided periods before. And the genius of America is that we found ways to overcome them is thought one. Thought number two um, there was a lot of good news that we didn't pay attention to last year because of murder hornets. I mean, the CARES Act was remarkably successful 
in averting the Great Depression. Did it solve all the problems? No. Did it give as much relief to those restaurateurs and others who really need it? No. Uh, but was it overwhelmingly successful in building a safety net for a lot of folks who couldn't work? It was. We saw the vaccines develop thanks to technology and thanks to investments literally had never been done before in faster than five years. And it was done in less than one year. Even Dr. Fauci, an optimist who was aware of the science, didn't think that was going to be possible. We've seen things like technology, telehealth, or working from home. Innovations like Zoom have, have meaningfully allowed us to continue doing positive things and in some ways uh, connecting in ways that we hadn't been connecting before. We saw the highest voter turnout in, 2000, in 2020 since the year 1900. That's an era of activism that I think is fantastic. We saw it in the midterms as well. We saw it in Georgia. I think it's going to continue. Policymakers avoided some of the mistakes, you know, turning the fiscal and monetary policy sp uh, spigots in the wrong direction that we saw in the 1930s. And some would argue we didn't quite do enough in 2008. But the last thing that really has me most optimistic is I don't really watch a lot of cable. If you're watching Fox and CNN and, and MSNBC, you're depressed because that's what the angertainment networks sell. But for me, it's how are the people who deliver the FedExes uh, and, uh, and the UPS packages from Walmart uh, to your house, how are they still smiling and waving or the postal workers or the folks at the grocery store who, who stock the shelves, you know, the nurses who, I mean, how do they not have PTSD? How do they keep going to work every day? How are the senior citizens? who always check us in to vote and give us the I voted stickers, how are they still there wearing their face shields and their masks? You know, and the answer is uh, the country is great. The, the, our fellow citizens are, are terrific um, and they're still uh, overwhelmingly uh, helping America stay strong. It's gonna help us be resilient. Our politics are poisonous, but they've been before and we've gotten through it before. And I remain an optimist. I'll just tell you what I hang my hat on. Our grandparents, they were born in the shadow of the First World War. They went through the Great Depression. They were shipped off to fight the Second World War. Uh, and they came back and built much of what we enjoy in, here in the modern world in this country. And they did it with optimism and seriousness of purpose. And I think we can learn a lot from that generation of Americans and remember what they went through relative to what we're being asked to go through, and it kind of pales in comparison. I'll just add one more thing here, a little simpler. Uh, we are past the winter solstice. We get a minute more of sunlight every day. Spring is coming. We are going to make it. Uh, uh, we will have an uh, inauguration in less than two weeks. Uh, 2021, uh, better days are coming, and that's what I try to keep focused on. Bruce Melman, David Thomas. Thank you for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Thanks, Dean.